From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Oh, my aching feet. Now, how often do you hear that? <laughs> foot pain is a really common complaint, and depending on the type of problem, it can affect any part of your foot, from the heel down to the toes. While minor foot aches may resolve on their own, more serious or persistent problems can require treatment. We'll learn more from a Mayo Clinic expert. But also, as we age, our feet get longer, they get flatter, and that's why you should periodically, as we get older, is to check our shoe length, make sure our shoes are fitting properly. The assumption of, oh, I've always been a size 10, it's not going to change. That's not true. Also on the program, how to prevent Lyme disease. And why can't I sleep? How to improve your sleeping habits. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, did you know? Yeah, you don't know because you probably never even thought about this. But how many miles a person walks in a lifetime on average in the United States? Oh, my gosh. Oh, I have no, no idea. You, you don't even have to guess. 100,000 miles. That's what, right? I did to, that's what I did to get here today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, let me see your Fitbit. I don't believe you. Your feet, you know, we take them for granted, but they do an amazing job of not only supporting our weight, but also getting us where we want to go. But your feet, believe it or not, you know, you look at your hand and you say, that's, you know, that's pretty amazing, a pretty complex structure, but your feet are actually not that much different. I mean, it's a, it's an intricate network of, of bones and ligaments and tendons and muscles. In fact, there are 26 bones in your feet. There are 33 joints. And there are more than a hundred muscles. Now, somebody must have counted those twice, but <laughs> yeah, it's pretty maybe. amazing. Yeah. But the feet are understandably prone to injury and wear and tear and a host of other maladies. Common problems include bunions, warts, corns, calluses, but more serious conditions like fractures, arthritis, and neuropathy can also develop in the feet. Here to discuss foot problems is orthopedic surgeon and foot expert, Dr. Norm Turner. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Turner. Thanks for having me. It's always good to have you here. And, you know, explain for our audience from the top of the show, uh, what is the difference? You are a, a foot specialist, but you are an orthopedic surgeon. So what's the difference between someone like you and, and a podiatrist? And how does a patient know where to go? So uh, my education uh, after college, I went to medical school for four years and then do a residency in uh, orthopedic surgery. Uh, so I'm a board-certified orthopedic surgeon, and then you could do fellowship in specializing in foot and ankle surgery afterwards. So long time took you to 13 years learn how to take care <laughs> of, the, of the foot. So as opposed to a podiatrist, if someone has a foot problem, how do they do? They go to an orthopedic surgeon or a podiatrist. How do they choose? Well, I think uh, uh, we do similar things. Um, uh, our focus is more on the skeletal muscular system, so bones and. Uh, uh, and the whole body, and then we focused on the foot. But it's we have similar practices. Uh, our training is a little bit different. What's the most common reason, day after day, that you see? Um, what's the problem that you see people that they come to your office with? I think probably the 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 biggest problem we see is obesity. And really? so um, our feet uh, are our foundation for walking and being active. Uh, we live in a concrete world. We're on our feet all day long. We walk a hundred thousand miles in our lifetime. Uh, so our, our feet take the brunt of that. Uh, you add an extra 20, 30 pounds or an extra 100 pounds, 
our body's not going to take that and they're going to break down. What does it do to your foot? Uh, people will have pain. They'll, uh, they'll um, lose their arches. Uh, they'll uh, develop fractures. Um, with obesity, we get diabetes. With diabetes, we get multiple foot problems from ulcers uh, to uh, fractures and uh, loss of sensation in the feet. Uh, so obesity is uh, uh, really a, a challenge for us, uh, and it's uh, probably if we could change one thing to help would be to get people's weight down. So why do diabetics have so many f- uh, foot problems, aside from the fact that uh, a lot of diabetics, type 2 diabetics, adult-onset diabetics, are heavy? Yeah, I think the uh, the problem with diabetes is when uh, people have long-term diabetes problems is they lose, one is the blood flow of their feet, uh, isn't as good, um, so they don't heal as well. And probably most importantly is they lose sensation. So they don't, uh, they'll lose that protective sensation of, in my shoe there's a, a pebble. Something's in my shoe, i got to figure out what's wrong. Take your shoe off, oh, and a, a rock falls out. They may, may not feel that. So they'll walk all day with that. They get home, and now they have a, an ulcer or a blister that has happened. Uh, so that loss of sensation puts more... Um, uh, you're more able to get. You're more likely to get pressure areas, and then you so get that's down skin. that's the condition we call neuropathy. So Correct. lack of blood supply and also a loss of sensation, a reduced sensation called neuropathy. Yep, and those two reasons. Uh, and also, the majority of people that are diabetic are obese, so the stress on their feet is much higher too. I heard you say that uh, some people, because of obesity, will develop flat feet. Oh, that's what mm-hmm. I was going to ask. Yeah. Tell me more about flat feet. Yeah, oh, I, I, I thought you were head. born with them. Get out of my head, Shives. <laughs> what does flat feet mean? So I think uh, uh, flat feet uh, uh, is kind of a spectrum of things that can cause it. Uh, some people are just made. You know, arches are like most things in life. There's a bell-shaped curve to it. You have some people with high arches, some people with flat feet, and some in the middle. So some of it for sure is uh, 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 the way you're made. And in that situation, for children with flat feet, we don't do surgery on them. Uh, there's been a number of high-level athletes that have had flat feet and excelled. Um, so we don't treat them in children unless they're having pain. And then we usually start off with inserts or orthotics in their shoes to give them support. But uh, as we get older, um, our feet will flatten uh, uh, somewhat. Um, but people that are obese, they'll put more stress on those ligaments and tendons, and they're more likely for those to stretch out or tear and cause your foot to flatten. So fallen arches become flat feet? Correct. Uh, I may have asked you this the last time you were here. I don't remember. But when a woman is pregnant, uh, you can gain a foot size, half a foot, you know, whatever mm-hmm. that might be. But why don't they go back again like they do in the rest of your body? Yeah. Uh, you didn't ask me that one last time. Uh, <laughs> The uh, uh, I think part of it is is obviously when you're you're pregnant you gain weight mm-hmm. uh, you do have some laxity of your ligaments and when things flatten they usually just don't come back in the feet uh, it's just probably related to the stress across hmm. it um, but also as we age our feet get longer they get flatter and that's why you should uh, periodically uh, as we get older is to check our shoe length make sure our shoes are fitting properly mm-hmm. and just the assumption of oh I'm always been a size 10 it's not going to change that's not true is it also true that you ought to go uh, buy your shoes in the afternoon rather than in the morning they say that uh, uh, because I thought I heard you say that <laughs> he's <laughs> part of they <laughs> I think that was last time I was here the, uh, um, you but, can't change your mind you know from one program to the other you'll keep me honest the uh, um, but that is true when by the end of the day, your feet are uh, a little bit longer uh, and a little bit flatter.
Let's talk about plantar fasciitis. What exactly is that? So I've had it. It is uh, very painful. It's very frustrating. So in the bottom of your foot, there's a tissue called the fascia that connects your heel to your toes. And it gives us some of our arch, and it gives us some of uh, the ability to push off and propel forward when we walk. People get inflammation right at the insertions, right on the heel. They usually describe pain when they get out of bed in the morning. Pain from bed to bathroom is pretty miserable, and then it loosens up. The key to that is stretching. Uh, so uh, people, uh, as we get older, um, our ligaments and our muscles get a little bit tighter, and when we don't stretch, uh, we put more stress. And so by stretching your Achilles, actually stretches the tissue on the bottom of your foot. And that can help with that. Now, uh, you will hear people say from time to time, I, I got an x-ray and my doctor says I have a heel spur. Is that is a heel spur a cause of pain? Usually not. So if we look at people that show up uh, to our office today and we get x-rays on all their feet, there's a lot of them will have heel spurs and no pain at all on their heel. Uh, so the heel spur actually is parallel to the floor. Um, so it's not a spike that goes down. And what a heel spurs can show is that you've had some chronic inflammation in that area and your body's laid some calcium in that area. But we don't take them out. Um, most people uh, are asymptomatic. So if you have a heel spur, it might uh, be the result of plantar fasciitis, but it's not the cause of the pain generally. Cor- correct. And uh, so the, the key for plantar fasciitis is stretching, uh, and then that usually gets rid of it. Uh, occasionally we'll use some inserts to give some cushion to the shoes. We'll use anti-inflammatory medicines. Uh, but the stretching is by far the most important. Time for a short break. When we come back, myth or matter of fact, don't make me ask this. <laughs> Flip-flops are bad for your feet. This Ooh. one's for your daughter only. We'll yeah. find, oh, how about her mom? <laughs> You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is orthopedic surgeon and foot specialist, Dr. Norm Turner. We're talking about common foot problems. And before we get to more problems, we've got a myth or matter of fact. Oh, I don't Take even, this one. I don't know yeah. that I really want to know the answer to this. Okay, Dr. Turner, myth or matter of fact, flip-flops are bad for your feet. Is that a myth or a fact? Well, it's a little bit of both. Oh. So I think it depends on the type of flip-flop you had. So the flip-flops that I grew up with had no support, really did nothing for them, and that's fine at you're at the pool uh, walking minimal distances. But nowadays, actually, a lot of the flip-flops are really well-made, and they give good support, and so those are probably fine. Having said that, you probably don't want to have a pair of flip-flops on and walk two or three miles. But in uh, short distances, uh, they're, they're okay to wear. Hold on. Did you just tell me that I should buy the more expensive exactly. flip-flops That's doctor's exactly orders? What yeah. That's what I said. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, let's talk about arthritis of, of the foot, and I suspect that that's uh, a problem uh, not only in diabetics, but a lot of other uh, people, not only of the foot, but also of the ankle. Talk to us about that and, and, and what options you've got. Yep. So the most common of arthritis uh, uh, in the ankle is related to people that had a previous injury or what we call post-traumatic arthritis. So people that break their ankle are at higher risk for developing arthritis down the road. Uh, how do we treat it? Uh, frequently, we'll start off with uh, a brace or support. And when that's not working, then we have two main options. One is to fuse the ankle, make it stiff, or the other is to replace the ankle, like a hip or knee replacement. We have ankle replacements for that as well. But uh, historically, the ankle replacements haven't been that successful. Are they better? They're better now. Uh, so I think the uh, there's a few reasons why that is. Is uh, The initial um, uh, ankle replacements were, they viewed the ankle as just a hinge joint, and uh, it's more complex than that. 
Uh, so I think our technology has gotten better, and ankle replacements are better nowadays than they used to be. However, uh, ankle replacement is not a perfect operation. It has some significant risks, especially of loosening uh, and some continued pain afterwards. Uh, so in the right patient, it can be a, a, an excellent operation for them, but uh, patient selection is critical. You just said something that made me wonder. Um, so hands and feet, is, is the ankle joint a lot different than the wrist joint? Yeah, so we can get by with fusing joints uh, because of um, when we walk, we're able to, with an ankle fused, most people actually walk quite normally. Hmm. Uh, and I have uh, colleagues that I work with that have has fused ankles, and most people don't know, and uh, they do their job and do quite well with it. Um, so it's a, a very good operation to get rid of pain. Uh, it does obviously take away some function, so they're not running or jumping, but they're able to be very productive uh, and very active. And the important thing to know about that is that if your ankle joint is worn out and you have an ankle fusion, uh, once it's healed, it's got a lifetime guarantee, basically. That joint will be uh, um there's no joint there, so you won't have pain from that. What we worry about mostly is when we fuse the ankle, we put more stress on the joints around the ankle, sure. and they can wear out with time. Whereas the ankle replacement um, has got some long-term complications that you don't have with the fusion. Correct, because the ankle replacement requires the bone to grow into the prosthesis or to the replacement, and if that doesn't happen or loosens, uh, then we can have to revise it or to, to convert it to a fusion. I want to ask an over-the-counter type question. It has to do with corns, calluses, bunions, and planter's warts, because mm-hmm. maybe that's even more run-of-the-mill mm-hmm. daily type of foot issues that people have. And Dr. Shives mentioned before we got going that you can treat planter's warts with duct tape, and I've never heard that before. <laughs> yep, so you can. You could uh, treat them uh, different ways. Uh, people will burn them. They'll use lasers. They'll use. Uh, they'll freeze them. But also you can put duct tape on it. You keep the duct tape on regularly uh, um, for about a month. And then when it peels off, the uh, wart usually comes off with it and frequently doesn't come back. No way. If you don't have a duct tape, what's the gold standard? I mean, plantar warts, uh, warts on the feet are, are pretty common. First of all, they're contagious, right? Yep. Just like athletes, they're contagious. So if someone came in and and they had a plantar wart and they didn't want to try the duct tape, what, what do you do? I mean, what's the definitive treatment for a wart on the foot? Uh, we'll usually, if they come to see us, we'll uh, have it burnt off, uh, we'll burn it or freeze it off uh, is usually the route we'll do. Uh, but a lot of times they'll come back even with that. Hmm. Um, so then a lot, I think people get frustrated because they kind of come back and, they, and then people will put the patches on that uh, with uh, uh, some acid in it that burns it as well. Right. But, but they're frustrating. How about toenail fungus? I mean, you see a lot of it. <laughs> and the, the, you, you see the advertisements uh, on TV that they've got the cure for it. Or some people say if you soak your foot in vinegar, it'll cure the, the toenail fungus. Is there a cure for toenail fungus? And if so, what is it? I think treating toenail fungus can be a challenge. Uh, it's very common. We see it all the time. And there's multiple different treatments for it. Um, there's medications that you can take, which are probably the best way to cure it. But you have to take them by mouth. You have to take them by mouth because the nail is actually made uh, in uh, kind of the, in the um, proximal part or the, uh, of your nail. Uh, the base it, of the, the nail. base yeah. of the nail is where yeah. it's grown, and so the the medication has to get back there to to kill the fungus. The problem is most people are not candidates for that uh, due to if they're on other medications. Uh, the medicines can be tough on their liver and they can be very expensive. 
Uh, and you have to take it for about 10 years, too, don't you? you How to, long is it? You have to take it for a long period of time oh. in order that the six months or nail so. gr- grows out. Yeah, it's usually yeah. about six months. Um, there is different topical, uh, so you put different ointments on it. The results of that is not as good. Uh, sometimes people will actually have the nail removed. And they'll just remove the nail, and a new one may grow in without the fungus, or oh. they'll permanently remove it. And it sounds uh, like it wouldn't be very uh, cosmetically <laughs> pleasing, but a lot of time it actually looks better than the real thick uh, uh, um, uh, nail that we see with people. You pull with, that out with a, a pliers, or you, get, no, you have a little you anesthesia? No, you run a marathon <laughs> in two smaller shoes, and it falls <laughs> off. That's what happens. Yeah. But did yours get better? Yeah. I, I, luckily, that's well, not happened to me. Yeah. yeah. What about um, corns and bunions? So corns are frequently related to uh, areas of pressure. So pressure will rub, uh, rub on a shoe. So a lot of times if you get in a shoe that's a little bit wider and there's no pressure there, sometimes people will use corn pads, or which are almost like a, a, a circular Band-Aid to take pressure off of mm-hmm. it. Bunions are a curve to your big toe. Uh, they uh, cause the bump to rub on your shoes and hurt. We see it more in women than men, probably related to women's shoes are more pointy. Men's are squarer. Um, and uh, but there's also a genetic component, so it definitely runs in families. But, 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 but the, the majority of bunions that you see, would you say, are related to pointy shoes or poorly fitting shoes? I think the the symptomatic bunions, so bunions that hurt, are related to shoe wear. Um, the solution for a bunion, man or woman. Uh, it used to be that the surgery uh, you performed surgery, but it wasn't always that successful. Are you are you better at that now? I mean, are, are you got a pretty good cure rate for bunions? Some days we seem to be better than other days. Um, <laughs> so bunion surgery requires us to reposition the toe, realigning it, try to give us the best chance to keep it straight. And if we look at large numbers of patients, we're about eighty five percent successful. Well, that's pretty um, good. So we're pretty good, but not as good as we want to be. How can I better take care of my feet to prevent problems? So I think uh, wearing good shoes, keeping your weight down, um, stretching, especially before activities, uh, is probably the most important thing. When an orthopedic foot surgeon says good shoes, what, what do they really mean? <laughs> so I think shoes that give you Expensive some, ones. We already yeah, know yeah. good flip-flops. <laughs> yeah. We already know that. Uh, shoes that fit you well, that have support to them, so that they have, uh, um, so they're not flimsy, they're more supportive, and, and mostly that they, they actually, your foot fits in foot fits in them we don't want you just shoving your foot into a tight shoe is it true that in general you get what you pay for in other words the more expensive shoes except for those kind of designer shoes Mm -hmm. like you wear but the the more expensive (laughs) the shoe the better it is in general uh that's probably pretty true um uh the real cheap Shoes really have minimal support. So you want to spend for a running, especially if you're a runner or an athlete, or if you're on your feet all day at work, you want to probably spend the extra money in good, a good quality shoe. That's right. And pay up for your flip-flops, Tracy. You got it. <laughs> I'm going shopping when I leave here today. <laughs> Dr. Norm Turner, orthopedic foot surgeon at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll talk with an expert about Lyme disease treatment and prevention. And later on in the show, tips for better sleep. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Our bodies are meant to move. A new Mayo Clinic study shows high-intensity interval training, that's when you repeatedly go hard for a few minutes and then go slowly, helps reverse aging changes. It builds exercise capacity, which helps you to stay healthier longer. People who maintain a high 
endurance capacity, they have lower mortality. Study author Dr. Sri Nair says any type of exercise is good for you as being sedentary accelerates the body's aging process. But interval training produces changes at the cellular level that keep your organs healthy longer, even if you have underlying conditions such as obesity or diabetes. Dr. Nair says intervals help improve your overall health span and even lifespan. If you don't exercise, talk to your health care provider and be sure to start slowly, moving more for better health. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, more than 30,000 cases of Lyme disease are reported every year in the United States. Typical symptoms of Lyme disease include fever, headache, fatigue, and this characteristic bullseye rash. If you do become infected, early treatment for Lyme disease is key to a quick and full recovery. This year, 2017, is predicted to be particularly bad for Lyme disease, especially in the northeastern United States. I wonder why. (laughs) Here to discuss Lyme disease. Cold and wet. Yeah, and to tell us why is Mayo Clinic microbiologist and parasite expert, Dr. Bobby Pritt. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Pritt. It's great to see you. Thanks. It's great to be here. Okay, Dr. Pritt, before we talk about the signs and symptoms of Lyme disease, tell us about this disease and why it's called Lyme disease. (laughs) It was named after old Lyme. Connecticut, that's where the first cases were identified. It was actually a mother who noticed that a lot of cases of what was called juvenile arthritis were being diagnosed in the community, and she said, well, this is weird. Why are we having an outbreak of a non-infectious disease? And she called the CDC, and there was an investigation, and they discovered this organism. It's always Ju- a mom. Yeah, ju- yeah always a mom. Know to the bottom of it. <laughs> yeah. right. well, no kidding. So uh, arthritis is a component of one of the symptoms of Lyme disease? It is, especially if it's not treated right away. So after the initial stage, then the organism goes throughout the body, and it likes to go to the joints. And this is a bacterial infection. It is. It's a spirochete, so it's this little spiral-shaped bacterium, and it gets into the bloodstream and goes various places. It likes the nerves, and it likes the joints. So why is this year supposed to be such a bad year for Lyme disease? Well, mostly because we had a mild winter. So our ticks are with us uh, over winter. They um, don't exactly go into hibernation, but they become dormant, and they live under the snow under the leaf litter, and then as soon as the snow melts, they come out. Ah, so if there's not a lot of snow, mm-hmm. then we see them earlier. Right. And when they're out and about, it's basically as soon as the snow melts, as soon as the ground thaws, they are out and they're ready to bite. Is this any kind of tick uh, can cause Lyme disease, or is it, a, is it a particular tick? Good question. It's a specific tick that we call the black-legged tick. Some people call it the deer tick, but the better term is black-legged tick, and it has it is infected with Lyme disease itself and then can transmit that organism. And it's a smaller tick, so the adults are only the size of a sesame seed, and the nymphs that can also bite you and transmit Lyme are about the size of a poppy seed. Are we getting better at figuring out Lyme disease? Because over the years, you know, I'll have a friend who has it or it takes up three mm-hmm. months before they finally figure out, oh, here's what it was, because, for instance, they didn't have the bullseye rash, or mm-hmm. they didn't have every single one of those symptoms. Are we figuring it out more? We are, but there's still a lot we need to learn, and I think a lot of it is recognizing the disease early. It's about 70% of people that have that bullseye rash, but if you don't have the rash, then you might not think of Lyme disease, so a lot of it is just thinking about it, having the physician think about it when they're seeing the patient for the first time. 
All right, so you got bullseye rash, mm-hmm. uh, usually early on. The arthritis can come on later if it isn't treated. So what are the other early symptoms or signs? You can have a low-grade fever, some nausea and vomiting, malaise, just not feeling well, some muscle pains. Um, anything that we describe as a flu-like illness, I'll just say if you're not feeling well suddenly, it comes on and you've been outdoors and potentially exposed to ticks, you should probably just mention that to your doctor when you see them. Say, I've been outdoors, might have had some tick bites. Well, it's the time of year when everybody does go outdoors now. Right. So that's right. got to be, that's always has to be one of the things you think of. Mm-hmm. And Well, if you live in an endemic area where the black-legged ticks are found and transmit Lyme, that would be the upper northeast and the upper midwest. Do, do most people who have been bitten by a tick know it? No, a lot of people don't. In fact, it could be up to 50% of people that have proven Lyme disease don't remember having a tick bite. Is that right? So the tick bites you and then takes off? Well, they hang around for a while, but they may be in a spot that you don't think to look, like oh, the back okay. of your head or, you know, in your armpit or on your back mm-hmm. where you can't easily see them. So what can we do to prevent Lyme disease? Well, how, how do we make the diagnosis? Oh, though? sure. We got- oh, sure, sure. <laughs> well, uh, the main test is looking for antibodies uh, that the body mounts to the organism. But that has some limitations because it can take about a week for your body to form antibodies at a level we can detect. So the main diagnosis early on is clinical. It's going to the doctor, having that history of a tick bite. If you have that bullseye rash, that's diagnostic of Lyme disease. If you're in an area where Lyme disease is present, and you should just be treated. No okay. testing necessary. So this is a, but uh, you can do a blood test that will prove that you have Lyme disease. But you it can. takes the blood test a, a week or 10 days to become positive after you've been bitten. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So sometimes people will treat for Lyme disease preemptively, but still get the blood test so that they can follow up to see if it turns positive later on. And the antibiotic is? Doxycycline. Unless you're allergic, that's the drug that most people get. And it, it works virtually 100% of the time? If you do it early on, that's the key is starting treatment early on. Once the, the bacteria get into your bloodstream, they go to other areas, and then you start getting some of the damage caused, like the arthritis. And so if you treat at that point, it kills the bacteria, but the arthritis is already present. So you may have some long-standing symptoms. And that doesn't go away? It's with you? It will go away eventually, hmm. but it takes a while for your body to repair all that damage. So um, arthritis, one of the long-term complications. Uh, what else? And has anybody ever died of Lyme disease? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It can go to your heart. That's one dangerous place. In fact, the cardiac muscle, and you can die of a heart attack, essentially. No, Or a fatal arrhythmia. Mm -hmm. What are the advances being made to treat Lyme disease? Well, at this point... um, it's pretty much still the doxycycline regimen. People are looking at other drugs for longer periods of time. Of course, my area's specialty is the diagnostics and the testing mm-hmm. in the laboratory. We have another test. It's a PCR test. It detects the DNA of the organism, and we can use that with the serology test. That's how we discovered the new organism last year that causes Lyme disease. The wow. one we're calling Borrelia mayonii after <laughs> Mayo Clinic. Right? Mayonii. Mayonii. Hey, and so you know, Italian. because I love talking about ticks so much, are there <laughs> other tick-borne illnesses that people should be worried about? Mm-hmm. There are, and this same tick, this little black-legged tick, can transmit uh, the disease, the organisms that cause anaplasmosis, babesiosis, Powassan virus. So I would say, bottom line. Avoid ticks, avoid tick habitat, 
protect yourself if you're going to be outdoors. And how do we do that? Okay, so it's the ABCs of tick prevention. So A is avoid. You just want to avoid the area where the ticks are found. That would be tall grass, uh, grasses, shrubs that go up to about your knees. They can't fly. And they can't jump, but they crawl up the vegetation, and then they extend their legs, and they wait for you to walk by. Okay. So That's A. That's A. B is bug spray. So if you're going to be outside, you can spray DEET on exposed skin. That will repel the ticks. You can also spray a chemical on your clothing called permethrin, and that will kill the ticks. And so I recommend doing both, spraying on the skin and the clothing. And C must be then clothing. Clothing, Yay. exactly. <laughs> and uh, it's not always possible when it's really hot outside. But if you can stand it, cover up the skin. They're going to bite your skin. And so if you have less skin exposed, less biting sights. That might mean tucking your pants into your socks, wearing long sleeve shirts, wearing a hat. And the last thing, of course, is when you come in from being outdoors, do a good tick check of yourself, your pets, and your kids. And if you find one, remove it yourself or? Yes, remove it right away. Okay. That's one of the most important things you can do. It takes at least 48 hours for the tick to transmit infection. And so faster you get it off, the better. And some things it can transmit faster. Lyme disease, we know it takes a couple of days. Well, there's a song like that, isn't it? I want to check you for ticks. <laughs> <laughs> Got to do it. <laughs> Mayo Clinic microbiologist and parasite expert, Dr. Bobby Pritt on Lyme disease. Thanks so much for being with us, Dr. You're Pritt. You're welcome. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll try to find the answers to the common question, why can't I sleep? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It is estimated that one in three adults in the United States doesn't get the recommended seven or eight hours of sleep every night. And sleep is now being recognized as a really important factor in overall health, right along with nutrition and exercise. Now, in an effort to find a quick fix for those sleepless nights, a lot of people turn to medications to help them sleep. But before you reach for the pill bottle, it might be a good idea to review your sleeping habits and work to improve your bedtime routine. Here to discuss sleep problems is co-director of Mayo Clinic's Center for Sleep Medicine, Dr. Timothy Morgenthaler. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Morgenthaler. It's good to see you. Well, thank you. It's good to see both of you as well. Dr. Morgenthaler, nice to have you with us. So, you know, there's a lot of talk now that uh, about sleep being a good thing, but we've always sort of known that sleep was a good thing, haven't we? Well, I, you know, I thought I was listening to your introductory comments, and you actually used the words, we now recognize that sleep is an important part of health along with activity and diet. And I think that's a key thing because I think up until recently, while it was very common sense that it's important to sleep, it wasn't really recognized the significant health benefits of getting an adequate amount of sleep. And conversely, I think it's really only been in the last decade or two that we've begun to understand the adverse health consequences of getting inadequate sleep. What has happened so that people are starting to understand that sleep is important? Yeah, I think I think there have been two kind of major uh, influences on on this area. You know, one has been uh, if you look over the past fifty to seventy years, you know, there's been a lot of forces that have uh, sort of convened to devalue our sleep. And I think you know, like any. Anything that once it gets under enough pressure, there's got to be a little bit of reaction. And I think as uh, the medical community has begun seeing more and more adverse effects from inadequate sleep, interest has generated research, research generates data, data generates information that can then be used to guide 
uh, you know, us, all of us in, in terms of what might be really healthy. And isn't it true that uh, the average number of hours that we sleep has fallen over the decades? So maybe it wasn't a problem 50 years ago, and it has become a problem now. That, that most people believe that that's true, and it probably is. I'm putting a qualification on that because the fact is that there weren't very good records kept of hours of sleep. Uh, just recently, you may have read, there was some fascinating work done by some researchers from Harvard where they went into some uh, aboriginal or more primitive communities uh, that had very little contact with uh, you know, more developed society, and they studied their sleep patterns, and they actually found that they had uh, relatively shorter sleep patterns, not, not too dissimilar to us, but, of course, there the issue is that they are sleeping in a much more primitive circumstances where maybe they have to be more concerned about their protection from animals and, and other things like that. So there's a lot of controversy around that, but I think in general your statement is spot on. Uh, certainly if we looked at uh, developed societies, industrial, you know, since the Industrial Revolution, there's been a contraction of total hours of sleep, and a lot more, develop, more problems have developed with our uh, satisfaction with our sleep. And we talk about seven to eight hours of sleep a night, and and we sort of uh, tell everyone that that's how much sleep they ought to be getting. But isn't it true that there are some people who actually need less sleep and can stay healthy with less sleep? That is true. It's probably a very significant minority of people, probably less than 5%. Is and that of course, right? everybody wants to be the in yep. the 5%. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of people who think that they're in that camp. <laughs> yes, that's yeah, true. Right. I and, only and, slept three hours last and, night. And, and I think that, to be fair, you have to also acknowledge that there are at, at least an equal number of people who need more than that mm. to be healthy. So it's a bell-shaped curve. You know, the seven hours uh, limit really has come about uh, by a consensus conference that looked at all of the available data uh, regarding sleep duration and adverse health consequences. And what they found was that for adults, for, uh, you know, greater than age 22 or so, that adults uh, who sleep less than seven hours, they have higher likelihoods of weight gain, higher risks for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and as they get even less and less sleep, actually higher mortality. So all of the biologic and epidemiologic data begins to add up and say, yeah, you know, for a population, the population that should aim in general for more than seven hours of sleep in an adult. When you get to the far extremes, then the epidemiologic data starts, you know, finding, well, maybe there's some increased mortality associated with people, adults who sleep more than sleep 10 time. hours and 9 hours. Mm -hmm. and so, but you may be finding individuals who already have diseases that predispose longer times in bed. All right. How about some tips to get a better night's sleep? Basically, sleep comes about as a result of, of three interacting things. One is uh, what we would call sleep pressure. I mean, the longer you've been awake... The, the more pressure there is to sleep. The second is the time of the day, and it really has to do with your biological clock. And the third is, do you have an adequate circumstance in which to sleep? And I think for most of us, uh, you know, where most of us are not moving around from time zone to time zone on a daily basis or anything like that. So for most of us, it comes down to managing our, our sleep pressures, trying to sleep at the right time of the night, and very, very importantly, what's the environment or what, what's the setup that we have for getting to sleep. So this really comes down to the healthy sleep habits that you mentioned before. And there's quite a number of healthy sleep habits. You can find these listed on the web at mayoclinic.org, and you can find it at uh, sleepeducation.org. There are very many excellent lists. But in general, you know, one of the things is that you're going to have to schedule an adequate duration to get your sleep. You cannot cram seven hours of sleep in five hours no matter how hard you try. So one of the things has to do with just looking carefully at your schedule and trying to choose, well, when is the right time to sleep. That would involve setting a bedtime that's early enough for you to get at least seven hours of sleep. We, most of us have 
uh, urgent business to attend to in the morning, school, work, uh, other things like that. It's important to keep a regular sleep schedule or a consistent sleep schedule. You know, a small variation because, gee, it's weekend or weekday might be all right. But in general, if you're varying that more than 30 to 60 minutes, hmm. you're building in some inefficiencies in your sleep cycle. And so particularly if you're struggling to get enough sleep, that's not going to be very helpful for you. Um, interestingly enough, um, we, we generally require some kind of wind-down time. Most of us require, particularly if we're well-rested, require a, a healthy bedtime ritual. And so that may involve... Uh, you know, shutting down work, shutting down emails, getting rid of devices, especially that transmit light into the eyes well before your scheduled bedtime so that you really are setting yourself up for success. And then there's, you know, some, some issues related to the actual physical environment. You know, do you have uh, a safe area to sleep? For, for many people, that's not a given, and we have to acknowledge that. Mm. Um, is it, uh, you know, dark? Is it cool? It turns out we do sleep better in a slightly cooler temperature than a warm temperature. Um, and is, you know, do you have a comfortable uh, sleeping surface and so forth. For, for some people, there's obviously a little bit of individual variability, but if you're sleeping on an uncomfortable surface, then you've already acknowledged part of the problem. Um, the circadian aspects, in other words, our biological clock, we have to pay a little bit of attention to light-dark. And, um, you know, I think the biggest thing for us in the United States is uh, iPhones, iPads, uh, other electronic devices that we're bringing into the bedroom close to us at night. So those are some, some general things. We also know that it's probably not wise to have caffeine close to bedtime. And if you're a person who struggles with sleep, you should probably minimize your caffeine and have it very early in the day. What about alcohol? Yeah, alcohol is an interesting thing. Uh, many people will you know, talk about a nightcap or something like that. And alcohol does have an immediate sedative effect. Unfortunately, it's metabolized into substances that really fragment your sleep later. So it's a, a very poor sleeping aid from a sleep doctor's point of view. And it has some additional risks of possibly worsening sleep disorders like obstructive sleep apnea and things like that. All right, quick last question. What about sleeping pills? In general, we would recommend that before you use a sleeping pill, that you apply some very basic, very simple techniques that go in the, under the category of what we call cognitive behavioral therapies for insomnia. That sounds very complicated, but actually some great research has shown that this can be boiled down to four steps that can work for about 90% of people if they apply them. So you want me to share those with you? You quickly. So number one, reduce the total amount of time spent in bed. I, I know that sounds weird, but if you know that you're having difficulty sleeping, spending more time in bed actually increases your anxiety associated with being in bed. And so if you can go ahead and begin to program reducing your total time in bed so that you are not awake in bed longer than 15 or 20 minutes, that's a good start. That may mm -hmm. increase over time. Second, get up at the same time every day. Make a pact with yourself that you will get up the same time every day, whether it's a weekday, a work day, holiday, get up at the same time every day. Number three, don't go to bed until you feel sleepy. Don't, don't go to bed because you think you ought to be going to bed. Wait till you're sleepy so you increase the chances that you will actually fall asleep. And number four, don't stay in bed for longer than 15 or 20 minutes if you are not sleepy. All right, there you go. Four great tips. And if you want more, go to mayoclinic.org. Co-director of the Mayo Clinic Center for Sleep Medicine, Dr. Timothy Morgenthaler. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us.
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.